right, welcome to the second episode of the 10 Tabs Open Podcast. This is your host, Alex Howell, and today we have on a very good friend of mine, Brian Watts from Infinitas, which is a wealth management company uh, in Overland Park, Kansas. Brian's going to talk to us a lot about uh, not only markets in general, um, but he's going to talk about his business and how he was able to um, start, some of the struggles that he went through, some of the things that he learned along the way, and then uh, what led him to the success that he's had. So I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. We're live. All right, we have Brian Watts from Infinitas Coordinated Wealth Council, which we'll have a fun story about later. Uh, Brian's a good friend of mine. Uh, we uh, we'll say we grew up in the industry and uh, had a had kind of a a business together for a bit, but he has since taken off and done a great job. So have him on board. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So like I was saying earlier, it's just loose. We can laugh. We can joke. You can okay. I was going to say you could come on for drinks, but you t- chose coffee <laughs> and then chose to not have any coffee whatsoever. Fantastic. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm an interesting individual in the sense that um, I have coffee with people a lot as a first meeting. However, I don't drink coffee. I don't drink caffeine at all. So I am the uh, person that has coffee with people often that doesn't actually partake in what the event is. So you're like the girlfriend or boyfriend that you meet that isn't crazy in your first conversation and just <laughs> continues on. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> so um, what is the, what's the new line in Infinitas? What are, can you uh, just give everybody kind of a descriptor of what you guys do, what you're, what, cause I know you have a ton of people that work in your yeah. place. I'm sure you guys don't just all share one client. Uh, <laughs> not today. <laughs> No, um, yes, I'll give you a little history. I'm going to go back a little further than that as well. Um, So I joined um, a number of years back a firm that was known as Summit Wealth Advisors, and it was myself, um, another advisor, and we had a number of uh, staff people to help us out as well, a number of team members. Um, About, well, it's been just over two years ago. So it was two years ago, January 1, um, we merged with a few other um, offices that are affiliated with the same broker dealer and formed Infinitas, which, <laughs> as we discussed, is uh, uh, we are known only as Infinitas. The Coordinated Wealth Council is uh, a descriptor of what we do. And it gave us a good opportunity to um, to serve people in spaces that, that we're not experts. Um, I tend to work more in private wealth management. So I work with individuals um, helping them plan for their financial future, but I don't really do a whole lot in the area of uh, company retirement plans, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, that was all being sent to another firm, and that firm has since joined us. They are experts in that area, really well-renowned in the area of um, retirement plans, and that's a whole other animal in itself. I mean, yeah. you know you spend some time in the industry. Yeah. Um, the Department of Labor likes to change their rules often enough that it's it's not necessarily easy to keep up with Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's comforting to know that we have a place to send that business so that people are served because we get asked that a lot um it's got to be nice that they're down the hall too it's not like you're yeah yeah Uh, that part is great um we have an advisor that's also an estate attorney um so we have that uh, offering in-house as well which is nice yeah for once again being down the hall right if something comes up and there's a need right then and there you don't need to um, make a separate appointment um, we have an area that uh, specializes in special needs trusts, and mm-hmm. that has become a, a increasing uh, need that we've seen over the years yep. where you have a uh, 
parents that have a child with special needs um, that they would like to pass that money on to, and there's an awful lot that can get in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so making sure that they're served. Um, and yeah, we have an area that uh, specializes in corporate executives, um, attorneys. You know, There's just a lot of niche. Yeah. Uh, there are 15 advisors total. Um, I think we manage... Uh, $2 billion, I believe. It, mm-hmm. it changes, obviously, with yeah. <laughs> every day <laughs> with the, the market. market. Um, and I, th- we've grown an office from seven people to, I believe, there are 42 of us now. Oh, wow. Um, in just a, you know... A yeah, I was there two years ago when you guys weren't near that big. No, no. <laughs> well, we, we've definitely... Um, service is incredibly important to us, so we need to have enough people on board to be able to make sure that that happens. Yeah, well, it's nice because, you know when we were growing up in the industry, you know, not to, not to speak ill of where we were or anything like that, but you know, being rookies the way that we were, it was like, you're encouraged to go out and find as many assets as you can, mm-hmm. wherever you can, however you can, or I shouldn't say however you can, but um, as many as you can quickly. And uh, it's nice when you have an, or, an office like yours where you actually have the ability to have people that are in niches and you don't just have to be the expert in everything, but your office is the expert in finance. It, yeah, and I, I'm glad that you said that because I, I think that is a big misconception for people that enter the industry and we can definitely talk about this if you want. Yeah, we'll go back. <laughs> um, but uh, there is, uh, there's absolutely an idea at the beginning of I, I'll speak to anyone that is willing and that can grow into a business that's incredibly unmanageable. So I feel like you can truly serve people well when you're at a point where you can be selective with what you will do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't hurt your bottom line, essentially. Right. Um, I feel like you can give your full attention to uh, the people that you serve. And, and you really, truly know what your capacity is when you um, can set some parameters for yourself and say, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Um, I'm, you know, I've even taken a bigger leap than that. And I've said, this is exactly what I want. And I really don't want anything else. Right. And I think that's a big, and you hear older advisors talk about this, or I should say more seasoned advisors, people who've been in the industry longer, where it, the day that you know that you're a good advisor is when you can turn somebody down. That doesn't always mean that you don't like them, their personality or something like that. It a lot of times means that that's just not something that you're either fit to do or that you even enjoy doing, which makes you a better advisor because everybody that walks in the door knows you're doing the type of advising that you'd like to do. I think it definitely shows some maturity Yeah, uh, with yourself, with your with your business, knowing that uh, if, I, if I turn this down, I'm still going to be okay. Yeah, that's probably why I didn't make it. I ha- would have had to have shown maturity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just called me old a moment ago. <laughs> I said seasoned. I take it back. <laughs> well, you've been, speaking of though, you've been in the industry now 10 years, over 10 years? Boy, it all blurs together, man. <laughs> it, it, I, 10 or 11. Yeah. I, it, that first year was long yeah. um, when you and I started together mm-hmm. uh, obtaining licensure and, and things like that. So I don't ever remember what my actual activation date was. I know that it was around the the economic downfall, though, of 2008. That oh, was yeah. essentially where you, know, you and I began. Yeah. Uh, which I think was a game changer. I think it made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can definitely talk about that. But uh, I, I, I will say 10 and a half. How's that sound? That sounds good. Yeah, because I was going to say I graduated um, in 09. And then I know my I had like one class that I had to take in the summer because I went from the theater degree to the personal financial planning degree. Mm-hmm. Best timing ever to have a personal financial planning degree when it was 2009, like July watching the market tank. It's like, well, I can't get any worse. This will be fun. <laughs> I think I got activated in either uh, October or November, and I know you had been there a little bit before I had. But again, like it's it's got to be interesting to see 
the way that people are being taught in the industry coming in now as opposed to then because then it was like okay well everything's down so take advantage of it mm -hmm. now it's like people have been riding high with their advisors for several years what's what's the angle now uh, you know i everything was down take advantage of it was probably the mantra within an educational environment mm -hmm. um which i I mean, you know, and you yeah. know, the audience knows I don't have a background in finance. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't have that experience. My take on the ec economic downfall and uh, what I mean by it being a game changer is I really feel like most advisors mantra at that moment, as far as their business mantra was, I will do everything I can to avoid having a conversation with my clientele because that will give them a reason to leave. Right. And if I don't reach out, maybe they won't think things are that bad. And um, I'll be able to get through this um, as I always have in the past. And I'll call the one they have a twenty five percent gain on the quarter because exactly. they're so far down. Yeah, I will share. I'll share with them the good news, but I'll keep them from the bad news kind right. of thing. Uh, that was a very scary time. Yeah, uh, and it's almost so far removed now that I think people have forgotten how scary it was. Um, I can't even remember how many days went by before the Dow showed anything positive. I mean, it, I used to know the total. Yeah, but obviously it's been a long time. It's a, it was a long period of time, and the, in my experience, the collective, um, feeling of the public was, you know, I understand things are bad. I just would like to know how bad they are, and should I do anything? I I need some advice. This is what I'm paying yeah. for. Yeah. Uh, and advisors weren't giving that. I feel like, although maybe I didn't notice it at the time, the amount of clientele I was able to pick up over that period of time because I would talk to anybody yeah. and most advisors wouldn't talk to anybody at right. all. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of, a lot of advisors got fired mm -hmm. over that 16 month period of time. And I feel like I grew significantly faster than most people would entering at another point. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was there to help essentially and anything I was going to do was better than what they were receiving. Right. Well, that's interesting. That was such a, it was a strange time and, especially when you deal with the markets every day. I mean, I can't remember who who made this quote, but they said that the Dow has predicted 10 of the last seven recessions. So people look at the markets and they think like, oh, things are going down, it's going to be bad. And then all of a sudden it pops back up. This was like the worst time, and I shouldn't say like when I'm talking, that just makes me sound like an idiot. But um, <laughs> no, you can laugh, it's okay. But uh, at that time, you know, when you have a recession and it's, you know, more market generated, then the market goes down. You're scared because you're losing money. But for the most part, things might condense a bit. But for the most part, you know, you watch it and it slowly grows. You might not see wage growth as much. That recession was people were losing houses. People were losing jobs. Businesses were going out. You know, even, you know, in urban cores where you had, you know, just small businesses, small time businesses, people were having to shut their doors because things were so bad because nobody had money. So it was this very, very strange time where the Dow was crashing. But even more so than that, it didn't matter what your 401k looked like at the time. It mattered that you were losing your house. Mm -hmm. And what a terrifying time to not call the people that you're supposed to be in charge of. And that's something that I really wanted to bring up with you too was, I, I, Thought you might be throwing up over there. I was a little worried about. That. <laughs> Didn't want to clear my Didn't throat to... into the microphone. Fair enough. But um, when we got to that time, you saw the negative side of the of a financial advisor that didn't really do much. They just collected assets, mm -hmm. and then our government decided we need to put um, regulation in place to make sure that people actually take care of their clients, their fiscal, their um, fiduciaries. For their clients, and I know that you would talk to me about that. You know, 
year ago, two years ago, whenever the legislation was passed or came out. Now that's changed. We don't have that anymore. And speaking from somebody that's in the industry, I know a lot of people were not fans of it. But even more, but people that were like you, where you have a firm that can handle so many different types of people, and you actually follow up with your clients, you talk to your clients, and that's the reason that you do what you do because you're talking about their financial lives. That's probably not a good thing for you because you actually follow the rules and do the right thing. So, how do you guys, how did you all respond to that when it was going to come out and then when it was eventually retracted? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good question. And it's, uh, this is something that uh, when I've discussed this with colleagues across the industry, everybody always had something negative to say about, because uh, what you're referring to is the um, Department of Labor regulation yep. that would, um, it would essentially mandate advisors to be a fiduciary uh, to their clientele. Um, there were some changes across the industry that would make, uh, that would change some of the products to where you weren't um, receiving a bunch of commissions up front. Uh, commissionable mm -hmm. business was essentially going to become a thing of the past. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think you have to take a step back and look at how we even got to this point. Because if you look 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a financial advisor. Everybody was a stockbroker. Mm -hmm. And that emerged into this idea of financial planning, planning for people's future, and maybe doing a little bit more than just managing their money. Um, well, there are an awful lot of advisors that have held themselves out as financial planners, but have really still done nothing more than manage people's assets. Um, so for them, this was a very scary change and uh, something that was really going to affect their business. It was going to be incredibly costly. They were going to have to do their business completely different. Um, in my mind, I, I say this a lot and people laugh at me. I say, I, I really, I love what I do, but I really don't like my industry very much. Mm -hmm. And I don't like, um, you know, a large portion of my industry that really doesn't do a whole lot for their clientele, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I'm a complete quarterback of somebody's financial life. Uh, anything financially related or anything outside of that, you know, I, I, I essentially am involved in when somebody passes away, I make sure that I'm helping with their family, whether their clientele or not, because that's what I feel like I've signed up to do. Right. Um, to get back to your question, um, you know, how did I feel about it? I thought it was something that was very necessary. Whether or not it should have come from the Department of Labor is maybe in question. Right. But um, I don't know why you would fight something that essentially wants to level the playing field a little bit, mm -hmm. get rid of individuals in our industry that maybe don't have their client's best interest at heart right? Um, and uh, do things, I guess, that um, more justify what we get paid to do. Yeah. You know, as far as how it affected our firm, it really didn't. Because uh, you were already doing we it. We were already, yeah. yeah. I mean, we had been fee-based advisory, a fee-based advisory service for a long time. And for those who are listening, tell the difference between oh, fee-based. Oh, yeah, and, thank yeah. you. So, yeah. um <clears throat> Um, you know, this is something you don't think about. You think mm -hmm. I'm going to go to a financial professional. They're going to one, know exactly what they're doing. And two, they're going <laughs> to be, have my best interest at heart anyway. Why do we need a rule like this? And three, everybody's going to be the same. Um, and none of the three of those are really true. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting industry because you don't even really need any formal education. You just need to be able to pass the series seven exam, which yep. is not easy. Um, so you've got that piece of it. But once you pass that exam, you don't really know how to do anything necessarily. Right, you know how to pass a test. You know how to pass a test. You don't really know how to plan. Um, you know, two, 
there was an awful lot of people that were charging a lot of commissions up front, which is a commission-based advisor, meaning that I will sell you products and I'm going to get paid a bunch up front. And then the next time we need to make a change, I'm going to sell you some different products and I'm going to get paid a whole bunch up front, which would beg me to wonder as a consumer, does the person on the other end or the advisor have my best interest at heart or do they just need to make some money at this time? And that's where we're making changes. Right. Um, a fee-based advisor, and the reason why it says based is because there are some things that we will do for people that, that we have no other choice than to charge a commission and like if we're right. going to write somebody life insurance. Um, but other than that, everything is just a straight flat fee. Um, anytime we're making changes uh, to anything that we're doing for you, it's all included in that fee, so you don't ever have to take that into consideration of, you know, is this in my best interest or not? It, it it must be because it's part of the, the fee. So that's the difference, essentially. A commission-based advisor gets paid for every piece of business that they do for you, and then you may not hear from them again because they're not getting paid anything, whereas mm -hmm. a fee-based advisor um, just charges a flat fee right. um, across the board. Is that a good enough description? Yeah, and all the services are included with that. So when yeah, you do, you know, when you have to update the plan, when you have to call somebody about it, that's just part of what you're paying for is within that fee. Yeah, it's more one-stop shop, I guess, if you will. But uh, And that's what we were doing. We saw that, one, that makes sense. Yeah. And two, I mean, a number of years back, we saw that that was probably the way the industry would go. Um, we were right on that, yeah. I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an all-encompassing service. Um, so the Department of Labor change really didn't affect us. And we saw... Our assumption was was if it would have passed, which it didn't, it mm. ended up failing yeah. uh, due to change in Washington. Yep. Um, our assumption was is if it would have passed, that we would have probably lost 30% of the advisors in the industry, which mm -hmm. may not have been a bad thing. Right. Yeah, you were talking a second ago about how you feel about your own industry and it's like welcome to the real estate world too like <laughs> i think any realtor you talk to probably has several names on their phone that they just kind of cringe whenever they get yeah. the phone call from them but um so what do you think is when somebody comes in and they see that you're a financial advisor because you spoke of the idea that a lot of people think that every financial advisor is the same thing mm -hmm. and you and i both know that because we've been in the industry you've obviously been in it longer than i was but there are almost an infinite number of advisors that like they change year to year as opposed to just staying, you know, the same thing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the most, um, when somebody comes in, who's new, who either has had an advisor or just had one back in the day or never has had an advisor, what's the most misunderstood thing about what you do as opposed to what they anticipate you're going to tell them uh, from a client perspective yes. or from a yeah. prospect perspective? Exactly. Wow. That's a really good question. Um, it, it ranges so widely mm -hmm. because uh, so let's let's break it up into two. Yep. Let's say someone that comes in that has an experience with an advisor in the past, which you'd be really surprised as to how many people have not had that. Mm -hmm. um, I did the math one time, and it looks like to me probably fewer than five percent of the population actually uses an advisor, yeah. which is odd, but yep. uh, that's that's probably pretty close. Mm -hmm. uh, so someone that has no advisory experience. Um, really comes in with the preconceived notion of, I guess you're going to take my old 401k and tell me if I should do something different with it. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. um, so the breadth of service that we offer is obviously significantly wider than that. Managing yeah. money is a piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, that at the time may not be the most important piece depending upon what's going on in their life. Um, someone that has had an advisor before, the 
the biggest, um, I, I guess the, the underlying theme that I will hear more times than not is I just want somebody that will call me at least once a year, which I'm usually floored with. I, I don't even understand how you can essentially charge someone and not talk to them right. <laughs> at least yeah. once a year. So the bar is not set very high. Um, those are, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's essentially what I tend to hear more, mm -hmm. more often than not. I really don't hear people that come in and say, I want X, Y, and Z because this is what I've had in the past. Uh, for the most part, people are even surprised that I'm going to do a financial plan for them and they don't even know what that means. Right. Um, kind of on a side note. So I started working with someone new uh, last month mm -hmm. and um, it's a husband and wife that have been... Uh, this is a blended family, essentially. So they were both married in the past. They both have children from previous marriage and have gotten together um, and have a good life now. Yeah. But whenever you add complications such as um, an ex-spouse or children from another marriage or whatever, it, it causes some issues down the road. Yeah. How is money going to get passed to them? How do how, you know? These are real conversations we need to think about, and they're hard conversations. Uh, they they can be. Yeah. And uh, you know how does um, how does a new spouse feel about their new spouse's child that is not really theirs? Mm -hmm. About paying for them to go to school, right? Uh, you know things like this. How how do people really feel about this? Um, and generally, when people come in, that's one of the first things that I'll. Uh, talk with them about you know we have something that's called a discovery meeting and it's called a discovery meeting because you may not have thought about some of this before mm -hmm. and your spouse may not know but maybe you have thought about it but your spouse doesn't know what you think right something that um that drives me crazy is one of the questions most advisors ask are what are your goals and i would say that most people on the other side of the table don't know because mm -hmm. they've never really thought about it. Well, and if you the, force them into the situation, you're probably saying, like, pay for college, retire. Yeah, they'll yeah. say, I guess I want to retire at 65 <clears throat> because that's the textbook answer. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that's true, mm -hmm. or and that's probably not the only thing that's important to them in life. Right. We really talk about these things. So anyway, um, back to this couple. Um, the wife worked for a school district for a period of time and had a retirement benefit through that district, but um, when I was reviewing it, I realized that she was – about, she was about 99% vested into that, meaning that she was, if she did nothing, she was not going to be able to have any part of that benefit at all. Mm -hmm. And there's a pretty simple solution where basically you can buy that time that she didn't actually work, and then you have access to the benefit. Hmm. And that was all I said. I just said I was reviewing this. Um, this is something that you own, but you, if we do nothing and you have until next year to make this determination. If you do nothing, you're basically throwing this money away. And here's a pretty simple solution to where you can actually access that. Then we can determine what we want to do. And she looked at her husband and said, that was all I needed to know. I don't even <laughs> need to know anything else. He obviously is going to provide benefit because yeah. I've been working with our past advisor for 10 years and he never mentioned this. All he said is when you start to use this benefit, fill in the blank right but never took the time to look to see that she actually was not going to have it she was going to miss out on it oh wow um and i mean i guess that's what i feel like people should expect mm -hmm. and whether you've worked with an advisor or not people don't uh, people tend to come to me not realizing that that's the level of service that they should be 
asking for. Yeah, and I think the, the level of service on that side is amazing because stories like that are the ones that you get to carry forward and say, hey, here's part of the reason that you need somebody that's going to be in your corner because it's not just about the amount of money that we have here. Fantastic, that's back mm -hmm. here now. Let's talk about what your life needs to look like or what your, what your life should look like because of what you have currently. Yeah. And I know that with, I mean, our personal situation when we had our trust set up, there was the issue that, you know, we didn't have one little line set up correctly and it wouldn't, you know, we'd be gone, wouldn't have caused us much of an issue. But at the time that we passed, it would have caused whoever had to deal with that a big issue. And it was just mm -hmm. one way that we were, you know, TODing or whatever it was to our trust and you caught it talked with our estate lawyer and I'm like, yep, that's absolutely incorrect. Let's change it. Boom, done. It took, what, a couple of phone calls and it was over. And, you know, and that's the thing. Um, and I'm going to talk myself out of a job here. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, to me the positive is, you know, when, like we were talking about earlier, nobody is an expert in everything. And even if you are an expert, mistakes are made. And that's completely innocent as long as you have multiple eyes on the table that are all focused on their client. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I was going to say to the sense that, these types of issues, you know, whether it's when you sit down uh, for your very first job and HR hands you a big packet of information on your retirement plan and your health benefits, it, typically people don't even really know what to do with that or, you know, what it means. Uh, this is something that we all have to deal with once we get into the, you know, quote unquote real world. Um, these are these are adult things, I guess, that we all have to deal with. And there's really no opportunity to receive any type, any type of training whatsoever uh, for them. And, I, you know, I always, you know, kind of get up on my soapbox and say, <laughs> I wish there was a way that we could correct that system earlier on so that at least people weren't fearful of, you know, these processes that we're all going to have to deal with. Um, yeah. That, that's why I said I'm going to talk myself out of a job here because <laughs> this is what I do. But but it is frustrating, and it really kind of leads to, you know, why I ended up even going into this profession to begin with. Because uh, this is a second career for me. Um, I spent uh, a number of years as a pharmaceutical rep, so I always tell people I used to sell drugs, but they were just legal. <laughs> and you know, I really got into that because I wanted to, I wanted to provide a benefit to. Um, physicians, you know, they, they have a lot of information coming at them that they have a hard time keeping up with. So I felt like that was my job was to provide the information of new research that was going on. And, you know, hopefully they would sell my drug because it would work. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that that was not really what you got to do. Um, you do get to do that in this profession a lot because this is something that people really need. Uh, right. they, they need somebody trusted. I mean, you know, if you feel like the curtain, our industry is really not that difficult, whereas nothing <laughs> probably really is if you know it well enough. Um, but our industry is, are, what the things we deal with are scary for people because people just assume that they, one, do not understand, and two, they're probably not going to. Right. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting one because there are so many, I, I think when you're professionally licensed, there are a lot of careers that people automatically determine that this person is very well educated. This person knows exactly what they're doing. And I think about, you know, obviously in my household with my wife being an attorney, like you go to school for three years, you get, you know, you pass the bar and then you start being an attorney. And then you, you know, look at real estate agents and there are so many real estate agents out there that you're just like, Hey, you probably just have to pass a little test. And then you, you get to have a part-time career. Well, your Congratulations. wife is very, very, very well educated. Oh, very. very smart. Yeah. I mean, she was, we need to give her her credit. Oh, <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble. No, she was top three in her class, order of the court, order of the barristers, clerk for an appellate judge. Like right, she's got, the, got it. I know she's, she's the best. I love you. But, uh, <laughs> 
No, but I mean, you you see that, and it's like just certain careers that hold licensure seem to track a little bit differently. Financial advisors, I mean, how many times when we first came into the industry, you know, we came in with Waddell and Reed, and we had people that would come in and talk about I'm fine saying it. They were a great place. Okay. But um, no, when we came into the industry, but the thing that I did like about them was they brought people in at times, not everybody, but at times they would bring somebody in that would say, you know, here's what people think. You know, if you say you're a financial, do you remember the conversation? I can't remember who it was that came in, but it was like, if you say you're a financial advisor, their brain's going to shut off. I think it might have been Rick yeah. that said it. Yeah. But, you know, you <laughs> most ha- things that we learned in that day came from him. Exactly. <laughs> I, I still, um, this is not going to, your audience is not going to find this interesting, but the, <laughs> the individual that trained um, um, Alex and I, I still see his face in my head a lot when I'm making a decision. Yeah. And the, the things that he uh, would say have lived on and they've yeah seemed to be true. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just really enjoyed his part of the conversation because he would say, you know, because at that point you're, you know, he's tr- turning you into a salesman, which essentially you especially are in the very beginning mm-hmm. before you feel like you become an advisor. And, you know, it was always like the card thing. Like, don't just throw out a business card because it's going to go in the trash. Don't do this because it's going to go in the trash. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see when somebody needs something on finance on the financial side, a lot of times they'll go online because they think that the person that they would go see is a stockbroker in a suit that's just going to sell them a product mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who is, you know, actually there for them that's going to take a look at their lives and is going to go past the question of what are your goals and they say, pay for my kid's college and retirement. And you say, okay, great, great answer. Now let's talk about what that, that, what all that actually means. And I think that's an important part of the industry because just not many people see that. And the future is so important that the goals that you have are so important and you don't really know what you're looking for. One of the best examples that, um, we had not only what all when we were training, but that I had in school was when you think about somebody who's in retirement, you know, if they're, they retire at 60, 65, whatever it might be, you automatically think, well, they need to have these very conservative investments and that's all they need. And it's like, well, what if they lived in 95? Mm-hmm. That's 30 years worth of gain that they could have potentially um, earned. But you don't think of that because you just think 65, they need this much income and that's it. And if that's the type of advisor you're working with, that can put you in a real hole if you turn 85 and are all of a sudden going like, well, thanks, inflation. You're kind of kicking my ass at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But it takes those conversations to actually know like, okay, well, that makes sense. Now how do we approach it? And I think that's what, you know, as far as the educational background, as far as the Series 7, that can cover fixing that on on a sheet of paper. But an advisor who's able to have a conversation is going to be able to explain that help people understand that and help them have confidence going forward. And that again is where I think people like you come in where it's not just a transactional business. It really is a, you know, a fully, um, a fully committed individual. Well, and I'm kind of glad you said that because it, it kind of hits an area for me, but, but I'll back up. I will tell you. So the exact quote was, (laughs) if if you would like to have someone leave you alone on an airplane, tell them either you're a financial advisor or you sell insurance. (laughs) And it's probably relatively true. Oh yeah. But um, no, I think you, I think you make a very good point. And I I think this spans all industries. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, as you know, humans uh, want to impress upon others that we know something. Right. And, uh, you know, that's definitely true in our industry. And um, I, I feel like more times than not, whether you're an advisor or you're a physician or, or something along those lines, what you generally will go to first is 
what I'm going to do is impress you with everything that I know. Mm -hmm. And I kind of don't care if you understand or not, because you're going to know that I know it. And therefore you're going to be so impressed that you're going to, you're going to hire me. Right. And that's not true. I mean, if you think back to how you choose anyone that you work with, you're going to choose the person that is able to explain to you what you're doing in a, in a manner that you understand and to the point that you need to understand it. Right. Um, I, I hate going to, and, and I throw my wife's industry into the bus all the time. My wife is a dermatologist, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry. She does a great <laughs> job. However, um, whenever I go to the, to the doctor, I can always tell the one that I'm not going to work with because they'll start spouting off a bunch of information, and I just will shake my head, yes, because I don't even know what to ask them. Right. And I, you know, I, I, I don't really feel comfortable with what we're doing but I don't even know what you're talking about enough to ask you. And mm -hmm. I'm not brave enough to say, wait, I don't understand you. Yeah. Can you start over? Um, and I kind of feel like the things that we are dealing with are very simplistic in the end. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, whether you're talking about retirement, whether you're talking about um, saving money for kids, uh, whether you're really anything you're talking about, the only thing that the person on the other end of the table really wants to know is, can I do what I'm trying to do? Right. Do I need to change or or am I on a path to do exactly what I need to do? And what does that look like? If I'm not on that path, what path am I on? And I think you can offer that very easily. Mm -hmm. You don't have to show them all these graphs about their net worth and things that really at the end of the day don't make a difference. Right. I mean, it, I mean think about it. If your net worth is a million dollars or a million five, what does that do for you at the end of the day, except maybe stroke your ego a little bit? But right. I mean, it, it may just be that you have this huge house that you're you're not going to sell right. at any point in the future. It's not really going to... It's not making you money. It's not going to make <laughs> any difference for your life necessarily. Right. Um, so, so what does that matter? Uh, you know, if we're talking about retirement, for instance, I, I, I believe at least the people that have been attracted to work with me, mm -hmm. what they want to know is... If I am, we're going to use the stereotypical 65. If I'm 65 today and um, I decide to stop working and I'm going to pay myself instead of my employer because that's all retirement is, Yep. You know, how much am I going to have to live off of? And is that going to work? Um, if it's not going to work, what do I need to do differently? Is it going to affect my life too much now? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you can explain that pretty easily. And I, I tend to try to, uh, this, uh, I'm very anticlimactic a lot of times when I speak <laughs> with people, I don't have this huge buildup to, uh, ta-da, everything's <laughs> going to be fine. Have the um, chart waiting in the background. And, and no. And oh, sorry. <laughs> exactly. You lost, but thanks for coming. But I think that's, <laughs> I, I think that as a process, mm -hmm. you know, it, I think it's normal or, or natural at least to try to do that because you're trying to build up your worth. Right. Um, there's been an, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off into another area, You're but good. it has been, I, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to data, I guess, if you will. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it all goes back to my background, uh -huh. which was not finance. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the data suggests, and I think this actually will probably lead into a conversation of, you know, what I think is most important, maybe. Mm -hmm. You're the host. Yeah. You, you take it over, man. It's your world. I'm just living that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the data really shows that there's a huge increase in anxiety um, for people when they come to meet with a financial advisor. And it, it could be someone that they even have a good relationship with and have worked with for years. And I, I think this gets really overlooked and uh, not 
paid attention to enough by anyone. Um, but the data suggests that you can have an increase in anxiety as much as 75% when you're meeting with an advisor, even if you know them well, because they may tell you something that you don't want to hear. Oh, they may Lord. tell you bad news. They may tell you, they may say something that makes you feel stupid. You know, all these things mm -hmm. lead to, uh, whether it's conscious or, or, or not, um, an increase in anxiety. So if you think about a 75% increase in anxiety, that is equivalent to someone going to the dentist. <laughs> And, you know, what can we do to alleviate that some? Well, mm. uh, obviously, there are, you can put a fish tank in your office like every dentist's <laughs> office has because that's been proven to help. But, I mean, uh, more along the lines of I think when you are getting ready to talk to somebody, you can say, I'm going to cut to the chase. We're going to talk about what this means, but I'm going to tell you right now that things look good. You, you look, you're in really good shape. Now, we're going to talk about what that means. But, you know, you will see people's shoulders drop a little bit of, okay, well, thank goodness. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Now, talk to me about what that means. That doesn't mean that you say things don't look good. Right. You can build to that. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, I don't know. Do you mind if I change to yeah, something? Yeah, go ahead. Because I was going to talk a little bit about, um, I've spoken to a number of people in my industry, and uh, the thing that I get asked the most often is, what do you think is the most important issue facing our industry right now? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is it the fact that you know a computer can do our job is it the fact that the markets may go down is it the fact that um you know we might be in an election year and that may cause things to happen and i say uh, you know or do you think it's that uh do you think the the biggest benefit that you bring to people is that you know you're so incredibly brilliant and you're going to come up with all these solutions you know uh, with ways of managing money that no one else is doing well that one but <laughs> well, and, you know, you, I mean, you do have to, you have to bring a level of intelligence and professionalism yeah. to anything you do. You know, what I'm about to say, if you don't have that, if you don't, if you don't have a good product, it really doesn't matter uh, right. what you do. People are not going to come back. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, we are in the business of making sure that people have as good of an experience as they can have. Uh, during the entirety of their time working with me, mm -hmm. or working with anyone in our industry, for that matter, right? Um, you know what? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, the, why is that important? The reason why I think it's important is because, <laughs> for one, a lot of people aren't doing it. But right. two, you know, I mean, it really has been proven that uh, you know managing money is not super difficult. Um, you know, computers do a relatively decent job of doing that, and if that's all you need, maybe that's not a bad option. It's right. certainly less expensive. Um, but if you need something that's more all encompassing, you know, then it makes sense to hire someone like me. Um, but I want to make sure that you have, you know, the best experience that you can have uh, from start to finish. And that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, paying for trips for you or anything like that. I, yeah. But I do tend to spend an awful lot of time on the little things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I live in the Midwest. People here tend to be, um, polite to their detriment a little bit mm -hmm. when people will come into an office and if they're <coughs> if if someone says to them uh, you know uh, would you like something to drink nine times out of ten people are gonna say no mm -hmm. they probably want something but they're polite right um and they're uh, that is almost seen a little bit as a negative um to them i know that sounds odd mm -hmm. um you know so how can we make that situation better you know uh, what what changes can we make to make that more of a positive interaction that someone would have within our office. Right. Um, it, we went so far as to say when someone comes to our office, we don't have a parking garage. What if it's raining outside? 
Yeah. You know, that's a somewhat negative experience all of a sudden. Well, yeah, when you start out your meeting like that. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's uh, when you uh, – so we really spent a whole lot of time walking on that. Now, we weren't going to build a parking garage. We weren't going to build a huge awning. But, you know, essentially, what can we do to make that better? Um, we've been very meticulous about our office. Most of the time when you walk into any type of bank or financial services industry, mm-hmm. you know, what's playing on TV? Well, CNBC, and it may be really negative news. Is yep. that how you really want to start your meeting when what's going on today doesn't really matter for that person on the other side of the table? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we as advisors have to look through the lens of of the future for them. You know, yep. what can we do today that makes a difference five or ten years down the road? Right. Um, it doesn't really matter if the Dow is down. You know, two hundred points today. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's interesting that you're looking at psychology, not only in your meetings with the individual, but just in the overall aspect of what does it mean to come in, come into a financial advisor's office. Because mm-hmm. to me, to add to that and kind of go back, backtrack a little bit to where we were before, um, it's a very interesting concept to me that if somebody's anxiety goes up seventy five percent to a financial advisor, and you also know that the leading cause of divorce is financial issue then you know that the biggest issue facing like our mentality, or maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest issues, one of our biggest stressors is worry about money. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that I'll say, you know, whether you believe it or not, a, a computer probably can't help you with the worry as much. And so even if you utilize a computer to help you put together a portfolio, help you do all of the you know, data-driven analysis that you like to do, the one-on-one connection with an individual to say when they come in the office that you're okay or there are some things we need to work on to give them that I think is a huge relief and is probably really good for you know a couple especially with kids I mean any type of stress that's in your life it's good to have somebody that can alleviate some of that so I think it's a positive thing on your side but it's also interesting to me that going back even further to what we were talking about if you have a transactional individual who is, you know, getting paid money off of you and there's no benefit to them outside of, you know, maybe having, you know, your stocks in the right account or your mutual funds in the right account for that year because they go up. Fantastic. But if you don't know where you're going forward, that's probably not good for your overall mental health. What do you think? Do you think that's there's No, I completely agree. And yeah. I, I and I definitely want to give a commercial for myself to say that I feel like I <laughs> that I do a fantastic job. <laughs> um, I, I I think that my ability to listen and ask questions that a computer is certainly not going to ask you mm-hmm. that may come from body language even yeah. um, well, might, be, might be incredibly important yeah. uh, in somebody's life. No, it is everything. And, you know, you a computer can't read difference in inflection and in voice where someone says something and maybe you don't completely believe that that's what they think. Mm-hmm. That might lead you to ask another question. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, well, okay, you just told me that this is important. Maybe let's talk about why. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think you do have to bring psychology and philosophy into this type of relationship to, to really provide a good benefit uh, that a computer is not going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can equate our business very easily to, um, I mean, would you want, uh, well, I mean, a lot of people do like to go into WebMD, but <laughs> would you would you allow a compu- would you allow your computer your desktop to to perform some sort of surgery on you, or would you want it to remove a brain tumor? Probably not. Right. Um, At least not without some type of oversight. Right. And it, it probably just not. Period. Yeah. You know, because there are so many there's so many things that can be misread. Um, yeah. That a human can get just from 
essentially listening to you and how things are. I think that can mm. be equated into this. That's true. And I guess my point was that uh, if that is your sole focus is to uh, basically manage somebody's money from them only, yeah, uh, maybe you're better served by not having an actual human. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you if you really need to. My meetings are interesting, and I, I hate to keep saying mine, but um, they're interesting in the sense, the depth where we will go, Yeah. Um, which I think is important mm-hmm. for myself to know and maybe for you to discover about yourself um, so that we can truly make sure that that happens. Um, but I mean, they, they go a lot of times outside of the realm of traditional finance or, you know I mean? We talk about things that are... Sp- that are much more in depth than just, you know, how much money have you saved and what do you want to do and how much do you spend? Yep, you'll need this in retirement. Bye. Yeah. Do you have your two point five kids? And uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's it goes way beyond that. And uh, you know, sometimes I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I almost look at my profession more along the lines of being a resource to someone for whatever they happen to need at that moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that might not be within my area of expertise. It may not even be within finance. Yeah. Uh, and you know, how do I provide that to someone? Yeah. Well, so going from theater to finance, which was what I did initially <laughs> was uh, left brain, right brain, just in full, full war with each other at that point. But you have kind of an interesting backstory as well, because you, you know, your major was not finance. It wasn't anything I would say close to finance. You were biology, right? Yeah. Um, biology with a number of minors that crossed both left and right hemispheres. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, so that was Pitt State or Pittsburgh State University. And then what's your story from there? I mean, you you met Jesse when you guys were both pretty young. You guys waited to have kids. She went to Florida. You got to enjoy Florida when she was in school. And then, I mean, going from all of that to a drug rep, which makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll just say that. And then to, you know, becoming a financial advisor. And it's an industry where, you know, it, it's sink or swim. And for a number of years, you know, you just like a lot of other, you know, successful salespeople, successful advisors, they have to find they have to find out a lot about themselves mm-hmm. and how they interact with individuals. And we, you know, sat through I don't know how many sales meetings and different types of programs and everything else. Forty hours a month. Forty hours a month, yeah. That's oh geez. I don't miss those days. But you got a lot of different ideas and obviously all of those different things, you know, with the books you were reading, the seminars that we attended and even like the in-house sales seminars that we had to be, um, we had to attend all brought you to the point that you're at today where you know how to have a conversation with an individual. So what, um, what was it like when you were first starting here? I mean, we talked, touched on a little bit of what the market was like when we came in, but what were, what was your mentality about the industry? <laughs> It's <laughs> not where I thought you were going. <laughs> well, if you want to take it somewhere else, do it. And no, you know, well, I mean, I've always, we talk, we talk a lot about uh, what we've done in the past yeah. and you're right. I would not be who I am today without those. I felt like you're always just a collection of your past experience and mm-hmm. that's who you are right at this moment. And who I am now will not be the same as I will be in 10 years. Cause I'll have had 10 years more worth of experience. Um, but yeah, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to circle back around to your question so that hopefully it makes a little bit more sense. You're good. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I studied biology. My intent at the time was to go into medicine of some sort. 
Um, so I've actually had a few hidden careers along <laughs> the way other than pharmaceutical rep. Um, applied to school, did all that stuff, decided uh, before I went off to school that I wanted to ensure that I wanted to spend the next handful of years of my life pursuing medicine. Um, so I worked as a laboratory tech in a hospital and I did not, I didn't enjoy the person I became. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you know, not to throw that industry completely under the bus because maybe this was <laughs> solely my experience, but in talking to others, I don't know that this is the case. Yeah. Medicine is an interesting animal in the sense that, um, medicine as at its essence is divided up into a number of different areas of specialty. Mm -hmm. So that's why when you go into a hospital, you have all these different departments. Right. Um, and the reason for that is obviously because not one individual can know everything. You yeah. cannot be an expert in everything. That's in theory what's going on there. And that's mm -hmm. not what happens. <laughs> what happens is each department believes that they know everything and no other department knows much of anything. And I really, without going into, well, I, I actually have a, an interesting story. Um, and it was the turning point for me. And, um, I had a day where, um, I was, you know, down in the lab doing something, who knows, probably running tests on somebody's blood or something, <laughs> something very interesting, something very interesting. And, um, I got a phone call from a nurse that needed me to, or we had an order come in from a nurse on one of the floors where we needed to go up and draw some labs on a patient. Mm -hmm. And I went up into the room and I, I still remember this very clearly. And it's been, you know, 20 years now. Yeah. But I remember walking into the room and you have your little spiel that you always say, Hey, my name's Brian. I'm here. I'm going to draw some blood from you. And if it was my shift would start at 3 a.m. So you typically it was dark. Oh man. Um, and you'd, you'd always just kind of go through the spiel. I'm here to draw some blood. I'm going to flip your light on. It's going to be really bright. And that was the thing I would always say to people. And I never got used to the fact that I'd had to wake people up, by the way. <laughs> but I remember walking into this particular room, and there were a lot of people in that room, a lot of family members. And I just thought, you know what? This is a very nice situation because typically you don't see that. Mm -hmm. Typically, especially that early in the morning, no one's there. Yeah. And uh, you think, you know, uh, this person must not be doing well. And thankfully, he has his family here. So I'm talking and I go and everybody's kind of looking at me a little bit. and I'm not really reading the situation very well. Yeah. And I walk over to the bed and look down and clearly the patient has passed away. And I have no idea. And every there are probably 25 people in the room just looking at me thinking, I'm sh I can't imagine what they're thinking, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of what are they doing at this hospital? You yeah. know, uh, the, the, they must not know what they're doing. Yeah. So I remember walking out of the room and <clears throat> then nurse comes running down, you know, at me full speed, yelling as loud as she can, just berating me up and down about how could I possibly go in there and interfere with that family. And I just stood and listened to her for a while. And, uh, finally she stopped talking and she looked like a cartoon character just breathing real heavily. Like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I've gotten everything out that I can. Yeah. And I just very calmly said, are you done? <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? Am I done? And I said, are, are you done with what you're telling me? And she said, yes. And I said, this could have all been avoided very easily if you'd have taken this order out of the computer. And I threw the order at her <laughs> and I, and I just walked out, got downstairs and I was just, you know, mad at this point get a phone call from another nurse on a floor and this is a this is gross so you know uh, if you're if you're eating you might want to uh, not listen for the next <laughs> <Skip>. 10 seconds <laughs> yeah. but um 
there is uh, a nurse calls down and says, uh, you know, I had a patient vomit. Mm-hmm. I've collected it, and I think there's a worm in it. And I remember hanging up the phone looking at one of my colleagues just talking about how ridiculous I thought this nurse was that there was a you know a worm in this person's specimen. Get it into the lab, and it's very clear that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and I, I just remember having a moment at that time thinking, you know, who am I to to say that this person doesn't know what they're talking about. That's ultimately why they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not my personality. How did I, how did I turn into this? And knew it, that was something I didn't want to do. So that was a really long story to say, um, even though that was not necessarily a positive experience in my life, I think it's added a lot to who I am today. Yeah. Um, I spent a period of time working as an audio engineer. I mean, you know what, when you're young, you try to figure out what you want to be. Yeah. I was in theater. You were in theater. Yeah, I still have friends. I mean, one of the f- my favorite things on you know on social media is to see all of my friends that are in theater, and yeah. I just think I loved it. I've done community theater since then. It's absolutely a passion of mine. But my that that analytical side of me always has to have numbers in it too. <laughs> it wins out. Yeah, it does. So it's like I need to find a way to blend this. I need to own a theater because I can look <laughs> at numbers. And you can't really do that. <laughs> it's probably not a very good money making. No, nah, it's not at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I did that. I, that was one of the first jobs I ever was fired from. And I remember we were uh, loading up some speakers uh, at like two o'clock in the morning, and I was loading it. I had one side, and then the guy that owned the company had the other side, and it slipped out of my hand and it dropped and broke his toe. <laughs> and I was never, I was fired on the spot basically at that moment. And I think it was because I didn't ask him if he was okay because I was so shocked. If he uh, stops crying, if, if he, he stopped crying, would you have yeah. been like, are you done? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, I, I worked with adults with disabilities, which was really very rewarding. And, you know, I think it's kind of been this culmination of, you know, what am I looking for in a career? You, know, you mentioned I was a pharmaceutical rep. And I'd always find pieces of all those careers that I really um, – that I enjoyed, but the entire um, career wasn't necessarily as satisfying as it should be, or I didn't maybe have the passion for the end product as much as I should. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason how I came to financial services was kind of twofold. Uh, one was um, when I was in my previous career, I worked with a lot of younger um, people that had just graduated from college, and they would always come to me after they'd get this huge HR packet that we talked about earlier in the yep. podcast, of, what do I do with this? You seem like you know what you're doing. So that part seemed sort of like a natural fit. And then I came to a, a point where I got a little bit sideways too with my boss at the time. And uh, I was basically given the option of a huge demotion or resignation. And I chose resignation. And then, you know, kind of said, we had a financial advisor at the time. And I thought, this is something that I really believe I would enjoy. Plus, mm-hmm. I'd be self-employed. I can kind of make it whatever I want. Yeah. Um, so that's really what I wanted when I came into the industry. Now that 20 minutes later to answer your question <laughs> is I was really trying to find something where I felt like I could make a difference that obviously would, that I could earn a living. Yeah. Um, and do it in an area where I felt like I could communicate well. Uh, I think since I didn't grow up in the finance world, it provides an interesting, uh, perspective for me because I mean, I remember day one of studying for the exams. And I mean, I, I remember learning things that I felt like, boy, I, I really probably should know this mm-hmm. and I'm surprised that I don't. I'm almost ashamed that I don't. But because I don't know it and I don't consider myself someone that's 
unintelligent. <laughs> there are probably an awful lot of people out there that are in the same boat. Right. So I've always taken that with me of, you know, how can I explain this in a way that I would have understood when I was first getting into this industry? Um, like you can, like you've experienced as well. I think the, the sales process you go through when you're recruited to come into this industry is incredibly unfair. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you're given a very false sense of what can happen in a very short period of time. And I mean, you know, what is it like 98% of people fail in this mm -hmm. industry within yeah, the first, first three years. Year. Yeah. Uh, and first year's really high. First three years yeah. is not much better. Um, because it is a, it's definitely not a money-making venture at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I, I, I knew from the very beginning that I needed to get to a point where I made enough money to where my wife would stop asking me if we were going to always pay for my, for me to have a job. <laughs> so that was very motivating. Yeah. Um, and I, you kind of talked about, um, that one of the leading causes of divorce is fight over money. Mm. We weren't fighting. We just were flat out not talking about it. And I was trying to avoid her at all costs <laughs> and really did not want that to always be the case. Yeah. I, my first year, um, and I've come a long way since then, thankfully. <laughs> uh, actually, we can even back up. I remember my very first check that I got as a financial advisor. I still have a copy of it because I thought, this is awesome. I'm a professional. I Somebody actually paid me to do this. And once I got over that little, you know, exuberance, look, looking down, realizing the check was for $200. Yeah. And that was all I had made. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that my second thought was, I hope the checks get bigger than this at some point. <laughs> and they didn't for a while. Yeah. My first year, uh, you beat me my first year, probably mm -hmm. by quite a bit. I made $4,000 my first year. And yeah. now that is out there recorded for everybody to laugh. <laughs> but that's, I mean, and I think my expense, my expenses are really high and I, you know, I was, yeah, you lost money. I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be yeah. doing. I, I was not following the traditional model. Mm -hmm. um, I saw something different, and I knew what I wanted to build, and I knew it was going to take time. Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, my wife, who really was a great support, even though I'm sure she questioned this decision mm -hmm. um, a lot, um, you know, stuck by me and said, you know, whatever you need to do, you need to do. Yeah. Um, but coming into the industry, I really just wanted to find something that I thought would make a difference. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I think it's proven to have done that, uh, at really odd times throughout people's lives, uh, yeah. for me. It's, it's such an interesting industry when you look at the people that come in and actually like succeed right off the bat, because 90% of the time it does seem like it's somebody who, you know, we always joked about it at the time. It's like somebody who has gray hair, somebody who's been around for a little bit longer yeah. in a different industry and they have a, a catalog of individuals built up mm -hmm. that they can call and they already have the trust there. You know, it, it's in, it was interesting to me to think about, and the further I get away from the industry and, and the number of years, the more I, I really kind of reflect on the idea that when I graduated, I was 22 years old, and I didn't know shit about what people needed. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I hadn't lived. I hadn't paid my own. You know, I paid bills, but it wasn't like I was out there, had a career, knew how to balance, you know, my own personal budget. You know, I was... I had my own house in college and I did all that, you know, all the adult stuff because I was off campus and was probably a nerd. 
I was. I was. <laughs> Still are. Still am, and proud of it. I've got a Game of Thrones poster in here. How, how nerdy <laughs> does that get? <laughs> but when you think about it, it's like, you know, I was 22 years old, and I was trying to tell people how to invest their money. Then there's no reason that should have been happening. I mean, I. it's not that I think that you that people can succeed at that age. It's not that I think that um, anybody should look at you in a, in a negative way if that's the case, because what you're trying to do is build a career. But, you know, I, I listened to, um, have you ever heard of Gary Vaynerchuk by chance, Gary V? No. He, you'd probably like him because yeah. he's ridiculously blunt and to the point. And, he's, and one of the <laughs> things that trying he said, <laughs> that you're ridiculously <laughs> blunt and to the point, but unless you're trying to tell a story about how you got to one, one question, <laughs> yeah, that, you, then it, that's a long way away. <laughs> when you ask me 25 minutes later, I'm going, what did you ask me? Yeah. <laughs> No, but he has this point, and I thought it was a really good point. He's like, one of my favorite people in the world is a 22-year-old life coach. Like, you haven't lived. You haven't done that. And I think that there's a very good point to that in, in the financial world in that you're, if you look at it as a non-transactional business, if you're looking at it as a transactional business, then all, by all means, go ahead. But you have so much to learn if you're in this business and you're that young that you just don't know what you don't know. And there's nothing, again, I have no ill will towards somebody that's coming in trying to make make it for a living, but there's probably going to be about 10 to 15 years worth of growth before you actually feel like, okay, now I've, you know, whether you've been married, had kids, no matter what, you've lived, and now you can actually say, okay, now I understand what's going on. And if you would have told me that at 22 years old, I would have said some very not nice things and been like, I know exactly what I'm doing. And I didn't. I mean, that, I, I remember those conversations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. But I mean, I do think that that's a very important part of that industry is, and just like any other, like you have got to kind of earn your stripes before you can tell people what to do. And even like you said, right when we started this, you can, you know, scholastically, you can see it in a book, you know, you can pass a test, but until you've lived, it's very tough to be a true financial advisor because you don't know how to ask the questions and you don't know the 10 different things that might also be important because you've had that life experience and you've met people, which is... I think why there are certain people that transition into the industry very well from different ones like you did. You know, even though, you know, your first check was $200 and that's the case, you were able to go up to somebody and actually have a conversation because you'd done that for 10 years. I mean, part of the pharmaceutical rep, didn't you like have to interview like new people? Yeah. Yeah. So you're bringing new people on and they're talking to you about their HR packet. You've had conversation back and forth and you know, what's important to them. Whereas 20, you know, me at 22, it's like, you know, I, in college met the person that you know I eventually married and had kids with and that kind of thing but I still didn't know what life was until that point and I think it's something to consider when you're when you talk about um, some of the things that you're sold on it's like you have to be responsible if you're the person selling that vision to a 22 year old too like you have to say it might be a rough couple of years I mean Dustin cracked me up when he talked when that recruit came in and he was having a bad day and he just looked at him with his lean cuisine that he was about ready to eat and he's like this is what it's going to be like for a couple of years <laughs> it's, it's so true and i mean even though our quote-unquote class mm -hmm. of new advisors uh, everybody was significantly younger than i was mm -hmm. um I, are we 11 years apart something um, like that uh just turned 32 so. Yeah, so I was I was a year older than you when I started in this yeah. industry, but I still looked like I was year old's age. Yeah, or younger. Or younger. Yeah, you still do. <laughs> not, <laughs> the last couple of years have not been as kind. <laughs> um, yeah, two kids is always. It seems like it's it, uh, that'll do it. It's fun. But I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, and I think even something like that for someone that looks a lot uh, significantly younger than they are, I think you have to be fair 
And I mean, part of the term, part of the title financial advisor, it has advice right in it. Right. You know, people have to not, you not only have to be able to provide advice, but you have to provide it in a manner where people will take it. Right. And you're right. A 22 year old advising a 55 year old, that's a couple of years away from maybe early retirement. I, I don't know that there's always going to be that level of trust there. Right. And it may be somebody that's a lot less qualified, but just looks older. Mm-hmm. Or maybe is really good at talking, yeah. but doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. And I think that's, you know, anybody who's been in sales for a long time and transitions into this career, they might know how to like grab that individual and have them as a client. But then it's about, like you said, the advisor part of the statement. It's like mm-hmm. finance, one thing. But man, if you're not giving solid advice, you're doing that person a huge disservice, which again, going back to that legislation, like you know me and my past, I'm not exactly a big fan of additional legislation on anything. But I, when I looked at that, it was like, if you're in the industry and you're fighting against that, I probably know the kind of advisor that you are. And that's an unfortunate thing to say, because I'm sure there are good advisors, and I'm probably going to get yelled at by people that I made that comment. But it's, it's absolutely true. It's like, if you're not already taking care of your clients in the way that, that it'd be like, um, if they didn't have this legislation, and they said, you shouldn't drive drunk. Like, to me, it's the exact same I just, thing. I just laugh because that was not what I expected you to say. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, I shouldn't because yeah. I'm impaired. And in that yeah. situation, it's not that you're impaired. You're just not the fiduciary that an individual might need. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think it'll take a while for the industry to kind of catch up to that. And once it does, I think it's going to be a really good thing. Because I don't think you necessarily, especially in this day and age with, you know, virtual reality and, you know, Skype calls and you can talk to someone who's, you know, in Japan right now and it'll look like there's no lag time at all. I don't think that the nature of financial advisor necessarily means that you absolutely have to have a sit down conversation with somebody, but you have to be able to look at somebody, listen to somebody, know what they're, you know, know what they're saying almost without them having to come out and say it. If somebody can say, you know, I have this much money and I'm wanting to retire at this age and this and this, but in the back of the advisor's mind, they have to be thinking, this person sounds nervous. We need to talk about what actually they're thinking because what it sounds like they're saying is, I don't think I'm going to be in the position that I want to be in. And if that's the case, then we need to figure out what the position is, how to get them there, and then I can put their mind at ease and then have clients that are like that. So I, I think the number one thing that I was disappointed about with that uh, measure passing was you could, or with that measure not passing, was that you could finally have the industry looked at as the fiduciary to have the fiduciary responsibility that it always should have had. You know, you don't want to have the wolf of wall street forever. You want to actually transition into somebody who's caring about your family and your needs. And, you know, they're going to have other clients, but you're a concern to them as opposed to, you know, here's a stock, you know, and I think there's actually a larger underlying issue even than just that, because I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I think the people that are fighting um, change, uh, fall into two categories. One is maybe you're doing something that is you're not going to be able to do anymore that right uh, that you benefit from and you don't, really don't want to be called out on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you need to just go away mm-hmm. if that's the case. But the second one is I I definitely think that there is a form of, for lack of a better term, laziness among people that are really successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I told you I like data, and I mean the data suggests that the more successful you are, the less likely you are to change what you're doing, even if you know that it is, it's a positive thing, mm-hmm. and it's in your best interest. Yeah. Um, I mean, I 
I work in an industry of finance. I can't ever say guarantee for anything. Right. But one thing I can guarantee is that our industry will change. Mm-hmm. And you have to be prepared for that. You have to be willing to take that next step or else I, I think we're going to be 50% fewer advisors instead of 30 yeah. at some point for this next change. Because people are just going to say, forget it. You know, it's going to take way too much time and effort. I'm already 60. Mm-hmm. I'm, I wasn't going to retire for 10 years, but I'm just going to stop because yeah. I don't feel, I don't have the energy, you know, to keep up with where the industry's going. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I just, I kind of see the Department of Labor piece that we were discussing is almost a warning sign to what our industry may or may not be in the future. Yeah, changes um, are coming. We just didn't get it yeah, done now. Yeah, it, it will happen mm. at some point. And whether it's this or it's something di- different, our industry is not going to look the same in 10 years as it does now, and no industry will. Right. Because, uh, you know, that's the beauty of progress and technology and just what people want. I mean, you even look at, um, you know, the food industry mm-hmm. 20 years ago. I mean, it, no one cared where their food came from. And, you know, that's a huge piece now. And it's, yeah. a, it's a whole industry in itself. And if you d- weren't able to keep up with that, if you're in the grocery business or whatever, you're out of business now. It's the yeah. same with our industry. Where you're going to have to be able to roll with changes and anticipate those. Um, and be willing to do them or else you're, you might as well just find something else to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we saw, and I won't name names or even name the place that we were at when this occurred, but, you know, when we were in a sales meeting and somebody, you know, they always had the, the figures, like who's top of the line, you know, who's the number one person and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, that's great. Um, next kind of thing. But the one thing that drove me nuts when um, was when I saw people that were just, you know, the whole year, Nothing, 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 nothing. We saw them in the office like, you know, once, twice a week. And I'm not talking about the older advisors who would like kind of have their clients. They'd see three or four clients a day and then they leave at three o'clock. That's fine. They've been in the industry for 50 years. They've, you know, they've paid their dues and now they're not coasting, but they're actually taking care of their clients. That doesn't bother me at all because that's just the structure of your business. It's like an attorney who takes on, you know, a few clients every now and then, you know, when they're in their seventies, it's like, you have a huge store of knowledge. You just don't need to work the way that you worked when you were, you know, 30. Um, but the ones that drove me nuts were the guys that they had um, several million um, under management and they got paid their fees based on that. But the company would hold those back unless they had a certain amount of volume. And that volume would come from them, you know, either churning insurance policies or whatever it might be. And that's how they hit every single year. And I just remember sitting there thinking, not that I mind you know, somebody, you know, coming in late, like, you know, working a little bit at a time and, you know, hit barely hitting their numbers and getting all those fees. What bothered me was, what are you doing to your client? Like if, if it's helping them, fantastic. Like if you're saving the money on their insurance and you know every single year that that's the case, okay, you can make the argument that that's fine. But what I'm seeing is a guy that's collecting money from their client for not really doing anything outside of churning insurance policies. And that drove me kind of nuts. And that's when I think you and I had kind of had our initial discussions about, you know, what about this fee-based system? You know, what about this, you know, you earn, you know, one and a half to 2% or whatever it was on the portfolio. And that way, if the client gains, fantastic. If they lose, that's not good for you either. So you're automatically tied to them, not only in responsibility, because you should be, but in, you know, your value to them is either, you know, positive or negative. And I, and I guess that statement should come with the, you know, little asterisk that says you're not ever going to be able to really do much about that outside of, you know, 
the proper procedures as with regard to like allocating assets and that kind of thing, keeping it either conservative or, you know, maybe it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more out there, but you are tied to them and they should expect a higher level of service for you rather than just knowing that you're holding their assets. And with some of those guys, I doubt they, their clients even knew who they were at that time. And that is, I think a really important piece of why things like, you know, that measure should really be considered in the future because you don't want an, an advisor getting paid for work that they're not doing. No, and it, I think it all comes down to, you know, what value am I actually providing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to meet with somebody unless I'm going to provide some sort of value. And that value better be more than just here's what has happened over the last you know, six months, six decades. Here's, here's what, here's what your return is yeah. because they can get that from opening their statement. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it needs to be more valuable than that. And, um, you know, that value may fall outside the traditional realms of what you would normally do in your meeting. But as long as something is valuable, because if it's not, you know, what is it? It's just a waste of that person's time. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's a good, <laughs> that's, that's not a good way for keeping people around yeah uh, that doesn't that does not tend to make people very sticky to what you do no. um if if what you do is seen as not valuable mm -hmm. um and you're right I, and i mean I, the thing is is i really can't control what anyone else does i can only control what i do and i just have to assume that me being a good steward not only of their money but of their time when i see them yeah can come back to benefit both of us in the end yeah and it may be <laughs> it may be hey uh this is what uh, the professional I use does. What does yours do? Oh, he hasn't. I don't even know who he is. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe you should leave. Yeah. Well, I know in that system, a lot of times if an advisor would drop off, the you know the individual accounts would just kind of go to somewhere else, like mm -hmm. whether it was you know their manager or you know just kind of into the system. And I think that's an interesting uh, conversation to have at some point too. Is when you have a situation like that and you have those old, older advisors that eventually will you know either sell their practice or their business will drop off. I mean, how many accounts that were like that, where the person had left the industry and, you know, we would see their accounts, we'd try to contact them, they would have no idea. And so you tried to build a relationship with them, but they had come to expect a level of service from the industry that was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we can't, you know, we can't afford to look at that and say, this is, this should be the level of expectation. It should absolutely be when that person calls, it's like, hey, I had a great advisor. Now it's your turn. Let's continue this. Well, and I mean, uh, you and I would even find that with fairly large sums of money. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Uh, people that, uh, you know, people might have $100,000 saved, which that's certainly more than I would like to just lose. Right. Um, that would have no idea what was going on with it, who was managing it, uh, really even what the company was. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know. That's that's a that's an issue I think that needs to be solved but once again I mean I can I can do what I can do on my end and yeah. just sort of I, I don't know maybe I just hope that other people are doing that I really don't mm -hmm. um, I would be if a larger percentage of the population was served and served well um, I, I'd be okay if I didn't grow anymore mm -hmm. um, it, it's kind of like I, I was listening to an interview with Elon Musk and he said that they and, and I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't think this after seeing him, but I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I can relate. Um, and he said that all of their uh, designs and everything for uh, Tesla vehicles are not patented. Um, if we can essentially change the world into being all electric, fantastic. If I don't make any more money, and you know, at times I sort of feel like that. Mm -hmm. That uh, I just, I wish that there was a larger mentality of service. 
Yeah. Most specifically with my industry, but probably across the board. <laughs> well, I think that's the, that's the positive and negative of automation, right? Like you, you get maybe a quicker response time, but you don't necessarily get the answer that you need immediately. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what's a situation that you've seen more often than not that people will come into you and they'll just have, you know, regular, you know, issues. Like we've talked about this entire time, like retirement, paying for their kids, that kind of thing. But what's something that you've caught several times now that maybe nobody expects that anybody that's even if they're, you know, listening and they've got their investments with Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, like what's one of those things that it's like, Hey, you really should watch out for this and confirm that like, is it, trust like when something happens to them is it how they pass it to their kids as a spousal i mean i think one i had a lesson when i was in college and it was our estate planning class and it was like why you should always check up on who your um, tod is who your beneficiaries are <clears throat> and the story was that there was this very very wealthy guy and he got married and he had a prenup but he had been married to his um, spouse long enough to where he eventually sign things over to her. Well, fast forward, you know, they've been married for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And first five were great, got along. He put her as beneficiary to everything. Last five, not so much, and he eventually divorced her. Well, so he never changes his beneficiaries. So even though there was a prenup there, he'd already said after the fact, like, nope, it's hers. So before anything happens, like a year or two later, he's he has a new girlfriend, everything's going great. He ends up just dropping of a heart attack. Girlfriend goes in is like, we're good. He must have left something for me. And the ex-wife realizes that he dies and checks in. Every single thing that he owned went to her. <laughs> Nobody else. They, now, they weren't married, so I'm sure there were some really fun tax implications for that. Yeah. But it's like, I, like the way that the divorce was, he would have never wanted that to happen. And it was just like all of a sudden, you know, she became an absolute millionaire because he didn't. He didn't think properly. He didn't just check up on his finances. Mm -hmm. And that's a really kind of ridiculous argument or a ridiculous story to have. But is there anything where you see somebody come in and just say, like, we really need to check this and confirm this once we've got everything else set up? I, I don't know that it is ridiculous. I would say 60% of the time when people come in, they either have the wrong beneficiary or they have no beneficiary, Yeah, which can be really <clears throat> costly. So just kind of for informational purposes only, mm -hmm. if you do not have... That was nice, by the way. <laughs> for informational purposes only. <laughs> I, wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking of that. But that is, yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm back into financial advisor speak. Um, if, you, if you have your trust listed incorrectly on um, a beneficiary or if you do not have, if you've, had, if you've gone to the expense of having legal work done and it's not listed as a beneficiary on your account, meaning what will happen to your money when you die, mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people think, well, I had a, I had a will done. I had a trust done or whatever, but if it's not listed, then it, no one cares essentially how everything is laid out on your accounts. That is absolutely what will happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can come to the court all day long and say, but look, they had this document done and they say, well, apparently it doesn't obtain, it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to this. Um, so I see that happen, uh, a significant amount of times. I also see, um, it seems like the more money someone makes and the more money they have, the less likely they are to have actually had some legal work done. Really? Yeah. Um, I've had clients that have had, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars worth of liquid assets, money, mm -hmm. a lot of it's in cash. 
Um, and at the time, essentially, that would go well over what you could pass to someone if you were to die and not have them have a huge estate of tax bill. No. Um, have nothing in place about it. Um, I work with a lot of attorneys, and a lot of attorneys do not have this done mm-hmm. um, because they're, you know, they're busy. They're busy taking care of their clients. It's yeah. kind of like the doctor that smokes. You know, yeah. it, it, that happens more often than not. What is it? The cobbler's children have no shoes. Y- yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly <laughs> that's that happens more often than not. Um, and it's not because of any ill intent on their, I mean, they're just working yeah. and pretty soon they've amassed this huge amount of money and don't even really realize how sometimes it yeah. becomes incredibly real to them. And, um, it's really not planned for at all. Um, it, you know, as far as someone coming in with investments being off, that, that really doesn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. What I see more often than not is, um, I will have someone's father or mother pass away and the old advisor of their father or mother is trying to hang on to those assets, you know, yeah. let me continue to manage these. And you will look and realize that um, while the breakdown of, you know, stocks versus bond looks just fine, it's incredibly aggressive for their age. Mm-hmm. So they've just really not paid attention so, over the years. And I'm sorry to interrupt you on that, but mm-hmm. I think it's an important point. Tell me, explain how a the... Um, Stocks and bonds can look just fine on paper when you see like a stock bond, a stock and bond portfolio, but can actually be very aggressive or very conservative and may, might not align properly with what you're looking sure. for. Sure. Um, so, you know, kind of the um, the thought process behind investing, sort of the investing 101, if you will, is yep. you, when you're younger, you start with more stocks than bonds. And as you get to be, you know, older and you have less time for, let me let me back up a little bit. Um, because I think sometimes this gets explained incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think people tend to have this perception that stocks are risky, bonds are safe. And uh, that's not really true. I mean, all investment comes with some sort of risk. Mm-hmm. Bonds have risk as well. It's just different than stocks. Stocks do tend to fluctuate up and down in price more frequently than bonds do. So um, the reason why you... Uh, and and also, I guess, um, when stocks go up, bonds tend to go down, and bonds tend to go up, stocks tend to go and They have a, a directly inverse relationship to one another. So that's why you hold both at the same time. Uh, your hope is that um, when the stock market is up, you're able to take advantage of owning a lot of stocks. But if the stock market starts to drop down, you have bonds there to sort of pad mm-hmm. um, the decline a bit. Okay, so to your question... Um, the idea behind this is as you're younger, you tend to hold more stocks than bonds because the theory is you're younger. You're probably going to work for a lot more years. You have time if your um, portfolio or your account tends to go down a little bit to make that up later. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, you back off how risky that is or you add more um, bonds uh, to the mix. So whereas when you're young, you may have 80% of your holdings. I'm just using this as an example. Yeah. For informational purposes <laughs> For only. For informational purposes <laughs> only. Um, 80% of what you own may be in stocks and 20% may be in bonds. Mm-hmm. And that obviously adds up to 100%. Um, as you get older, that might change. <laughs> just Carry the one. Just want to make sure that everybody can do the math here. Um, as you get older, that may drop to maybe a 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And then as you go into retirement, it may be something along the lines of 50% and 50%. Um, 
and on paper you may look at someone's statement and you may see um, that they own seven or eight different mutual funds and on paper that doesn't really mean anything and then you start to look at what percentage they own of stock mutual funds versus bond bond mutual funds and it may be way off mm -hmm. they may be an incredibly conservative individual that was you know 85 years old in retirement taking income from their account and they're um, invested like someone that's 30. Yeah. That to me signals that the advisor is either not paying attention or they're doing everything they can to get as much money off of that account because, you know, we obviously make more as the account grows. It's right. worth more. Um, well, there's a heck of a, there's a big difference between, you know, investing in, you know, the fortune, you know, 100 and a stock yeah. and a high yield bond. I mean, the high yield bond sure. is going to go right along with kind of the more the stock market a heck of a lot more than you know a triple A top quality bond portfolio is. So it, it to me that was the example I always gave. Like if you're invested in GE mm -hmm. or the bond of a you know C rated company, GE is probably going to be state. Like again, for informational purposes, so, eh, I'm not I'm not tied to that anymore. I can <laughs> say it. You could probably get in more trouble than I. Yeah, have. more than likely. Are you giving advice? I'm not yeah. giving anybody advice yeah. for informational purposes only. But in theory, a big, strong company like a GE isn't going to move quite as much as maybe that C-level bond is going to rise and fall because it's a little bit, it's a lot more risky. But even though it's a bond, so you can be in a in a high, you can be in a good bond portfolio, but it still might be risky if you're investing in the right or in the wrong bonds. And I think it comes down to what percent of that risky investment you own overall mm -hmm. because you can be an older individual and be more conservative and still own what you're describing in that yep. C-level bond, but maybe you own 2% right. of your <laughs> overall portfolio versus 65. Right. Um, if you own the 65, somebody's not paying attention most likely in my mind. I guess the, uh, you know, you asked about, um, I guess the area where I have had people come in sort of fresh off the street and we're analyzing things. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can look at somebody's portfolio breakdown. There really ne seems to be no rhyme or reason for what percentage of each investment they own. Mm -hmm. And what that usually tells me is once again, somebody's just not paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, you need to make adjustments throughout the year, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, to sort of stay on a particular plan that you're trying to hit. Yeah. And the example would be, I assume, something like you're in a 60-40 portfolio, stocks versus bonds, mm -hmm. and then the stock market just takes off, so now you're 80-20. Exactly. So you need to you need you, to readjust. Yeah, them. you need to reallocate those things, put it back into normal, put it back into a normal situation, so that you can take advantage of that growth, but you also stay in the risk area that you need to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have people come in a lot that I'll say, well, this is a relatively aggressive portfolio, and they'll say, oh, it is. <laughs> I didn't realize, and. Well, of course, that's not their expertise. Well, and I just, yeah, and I just, I kind of think that shows that someone is just not providing the level of oversight maybe they should be. Yeah. It, pro But probably the things that stand out more often than not are, I mean, you talked about the beneficiary example, and I think that's a truth, a very true statement, mm -hmm. and it gets used a lot. Uh, I know HR people say that a lot to uh, new employees, they'll say, make sure that this gets changed and make sure you take your ex-spouses off. And, you know, I've heard a story where an ex-spouse didn't get taken off and they got paid. And yep. people think, well, that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. And I would say that an ex-spouse is left on a state, on a, on a beneficiary on account at least three times a year. Have you ever found one where they've remarried? 
Um, Cause that would be an interesting yeah, story. Yeah, I haven't had, luckily I haven't <laughs> had anybody, I haven't had anybody die yet oh, and, okay. and have it not go to where it's supposed to. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely had uh, periods of time where it could have. Yeah. I think that would be a, a fun, not fun for anybody but the fly on the wall, but just a fun conversation to see when the the new spouse has the old spouse listed and the new spouse finds out about that in the meeting. Oh, I did. <laughs> so I did, I did have a very interesting meeting at one point, and this is not the same thing, but I did have, um, I had a married couple that had a prenuptial agreement, and the husband always knew that the wife uh, his family had a lot of money, but didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. We were going through the financial planning process, and essentially what happens is if she dies, it skips him and goes to um, her brother, if he's still alive, and to the to the kids. Yep. Uh, and they were over 18. Um, and he always thought, he was like, eh, you know, married for love kind yep. of thing. Didn't really know what I'm uh, not missing, what I'm missing out on. Yep. Until we're doing a financial planning meeting, and we're actually taking down real numbers as to what the wife's estate will be worth if she's alive. And I can tell by the look in his face that he has no idea. And that was a very uncomfortable room to be in at that moment. However, I mean, uh, you you have to know that information. Yeah. And they've actually been able to move past it, and they actually probably have a stronger relationship now because I think it actually bothered him more than he realized that he didn't know, yeah. you know, that piece of the story. So that was... A fun day. <laughs> <laughs> there are times where you just want to be somewhere else, and <laughs> you've basically made the situation happen. Yeah, it's like when Michael Scott makes people bring in paper in the room so that he can get out of meetings. <laughs> I think he <laughs> yeah. actually says, like, no, I'm not going to take the phone call. I'd probably be the opposite. Like, <laughs> didn't know bring we were, me in the paper. <laughs> didn't know we were having office references. Today, <laughs> I love it, man. We, there, yeah. there was a marathon on the other weekend. I was just yeah. excited as could be. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I had to work. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a Jim Harbaugh. No, John Harbaugh, the Baltimore Ravens coach, made a Michael Scott reference later in the season that I thought was awesome. It was the, uh, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. Um, yeah. We're at 90 minutes. Is that, man, it flew by. I know. <laughs> this, was, this was fun, so I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Well, come on again, definitely. I'm sure uh, I'm sure as the as the, uh, the 2020 election nears, there's going to be some fun conversation to be had. Try not to get too political. I ran for office as a libertarian, so and I got curb stomped. But yeah. uh, definitely have you on because the market always, t- especially in that first trial to see if you can get to if you can get to the next uh, term, it always seems a little weird. And with the guy that we have in office, I don't know really what's going on day to day. Whether you love him or hate him, sometimes it just feels like things are really wonky, and especially with a Democratic House. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting year and a half or two years. So definitely appreciate if you can come on again and just kind of like walk people through like what yeah, the hell oh, is I'd, going I'd on. I'd love to. The, the market <laughs> hates uncertainty, and there's been an awful lot of that. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, man, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Um, how do people get a hold of you? Um, so I can be reached um, through our office number, which is 913-563-7300. Um, you know, you'll you'll get to talk to Sammy when you call in. She's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'd, I'd love to speak to anybody. And you know what? Even if it's just, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I love my current situation, but I'd love an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always happy to give that. And, you know, I may be able to prove to you that what you're doing is exactly what you should be doing. Yeah. Well, that's good to know too. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you're in good shape. Still coming to me though. <laughs> <laughs>
I assume uh, because of the rules and regulations, you're not on like uh, a Twitter account for your financial profile. You know, good knowledge. No. So we do have a Facebook page. Okay. Um, we're at Infinitas KC. Okay. And uh, we do have a company Twitter page that I would love to tell you that I'm the mastermind behind, but I am not. Gotcha. Um, we have a fantastic person in the office named Elise that is really, really good at what she does um, and making us look good. Um, <laughs> and then I have a, I have a Facebook page that um, is my private Facebook page that is not very well <laughs> because, I, because I'm not Elise. It's not, it's not kept up with very well. Fair enough. I'm, I'm too busy outside serving people, but um, you know, on our website's Infinitas KC, if you want to read my very non-traditional bio. Yeah, I uh, actually, I have your bio pulled up. I was... My bio like, is not, my bio is not written traditionally. It is not written in third person. It, it, it isn't at all. And I just, just the first line, because the whole bio is great. Um, it definitely gives you a good, uh, a good view of, of you. But I just love the fact that you started off with, I'm an only child, grew up in a neighborhood with other children my age. Unfortunately, I have no exciting stories of being a ruffian or a daredevil. Like, Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is I, with a bio, what do you want people to do? You want them to read it. Yeah. I wanted people to, one, get a good taste of what they're going to get into if they meet me. And I think that's pretty, that's kind of my personality. It's, yep. it's serious, but it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, but my goal was whether you like me or hate me, I just want you to read, I want you to read the whole thing. Yeah. And it's long. Yeah. Um, but I found that people at least read the whole thing. Yeah. Well, it's a good story. I mean, you've got, Thank I mean, you. right after that uh, that little intro, you talk about a, a fire that may or may not have been caused by somebody <laughs> in the neighborhood named Brian Watts. <laughs> I say that it was well, uh, what, what, what's the exact term? It's over, over-exaggerated or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's right after. It's uh, the stories of the neighborhood's garage being set on fire are highly exaggerated. Yeah, I think the, the point is, is I was an incredibly boring child. Um, I did grow up in a neighborhood where I was the only kid. You know, there was no one else my age. Um, and then I think next it's flash forward to when I feel I became more interesting. <laughs> that's true. That's when I feel like I became more interesting as an adult. Yeah. I, uh, I do the exact same thing when I'm talking about like stories growing up and it's like, let me tell you a story about my brother because he's awesome. And he has these great stories and I'm, I, nope, I didn't, I don't really have anything. Do you want to talk? <laughs> I, I assume you don't want to talk about choir. I assume you don't want to, you might talk, want to talk about baseball. I talked with baseball uh, on a, the first episode of the podcast, yeah. so that was good. And then you probably, uh, unless you're a theater person, you might not want to talk about theater, especially like high school and college theater. It's not uh, not uh, on most people's uh, love. Yeah, we, <laughs> we just, as an office, did a, um, a trivia night down at the Boulevard Brewery, and one of the categories was musical theater, and everybody just looked at me and said, Yep, you've got to save us in this realm because none of us know anything about it. So yeah. I know I would have enjoyed that conversation. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm so not the greatest representative of musical theater because I absolutely loved when I was involved in it, but I was also ridiculous. Like when we uh, uh, struck the set, my directors would always make fun of me because, like, like, do you do anything? It's like I carry stuff. 
<laughs> like the guy, and it, which is weird now because I'm handy now. But like yeah. at, at the time, like I grew up, my dad was a floor installer. I go into musical theater. I got, you know, a scholarship to go to college. <laughs> I can't even it, imagine that conversation with your dad that installs tile and floors. Dad, I want to go into musical theater. He loved it. Oh, okay. He was awesome. Yeah, no, he was a huge, like when I forgot my first role when I was in high school, um, I tried out for uh, Guys and Dolls and I got the role of Sky Masterson. Mm-hmm. The night before, he and I went out to dinner and uh, my mom was out of town and he was just like, you're going to get it. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, I know you're going to get it. And I got to school and I got it. And he was like, I, you don't have to tell me. I know. <laughs> but he was, I mean, they were at every show. It was awesome. But yeah, it was definitely a little, a little strange when you're sitting there, like everybody's striking the set and you're just like, so that's a, that's a saw. They're like, that's a hammer. Dummy. <laughs> like, oh yeah. I remember that from working with my dad. I wasn't that bad, but it was just like, I'm not, no, I'm not, uh-uh. I'll carry stuff when you tell me to carry stuff. But outside of that, no. You're like, I'm talent. <laughs> exactly. I'm the talent, <laughs> which I'm sure and just endeared me to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I'm reliving your life now because my son <laughs> yeah. does musical theater a lot. Yeah. And I tend to work behind the scenes. I tend to move sets around during the show. I'm the guys all dressed in black. So you can't see me when I'm back there with yep. the headsets on and everything. And then afterwards we will strike and the talent just looks at you like Ex- I, no. I put, I put in the work. I was on stage for two and a half hours. What do you mean? <laughs> I have to tear this down. So I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. It was always interesting. Like I think high school, college, everybody made fun of me for that. And of course then like, you know, a, a few years later, I'm flipping houses and laying tile and doing all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's like, th- I actually told my director that I was flipping houses, one of them, and he started like belly laughing. <laughs> he was like, don't let me into any of those houses. Like we, I have other people to do some things, but I'm good. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> did the inspector actually <laughs> yeah, exactly. prove this? Yes, he did. <laughs> he said it was the best he'd ever seen. Deal with it. Uh, no, I, no, you do great work. <laughs> No, but it it was just kind of ridiculous. When you're getting laughed at for that kind of thing, it's like mm, I probably need to like pick up a hammer and actually try. Yeah. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Nah, go drink afterwards with the rest of the group. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, hey man, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it is a pleasure. I appreciate the time. Absolutely.